please pronounce your name correctly for me? Okay, my name is Dario Illari, except in Italy, in Italian, it's Italian parents, it's Dario Illari, Dario Illari. But in English, I don't even, you know, it's Dario Illari. But what's funny is I'm, I'm five foot six. Well, do, you, do you have sent I'm five foot six? I'm not that tall. But um, I have cousins who live in, in, in America, in New York, and um, they're kind of two brothers, Italian. So all the brothers went over from Italy. I was born in London. They were born in New York. We have others that went to, to, um, to Zurich in Switzerland. And they said, oh, we're doing our family tree, as Americans do. Don't know, you know. But they kind of wanted to get that history. And I said, wow, that's good. And he said, he goes, do you know where we're actually from? And I said, I have no idea. He goes, we're actually Swedish. And I went, all right, I'll put it to you. At five foot six, dark skin. I'm not very Swedish. And what makes you think that? Well, and um, they said, well, we kind of found that our great great grandfather came over in Sweden. And our surname was actually, because in Italian you pronounce it Illari. And it says our surname was actually Hillary, which is a very common Swedish name. And I said, that kind of works because in, it in Italian you don't have Y as a letter in the alphabet. So, Illari is I double L. That's how it's pronounced. So we've kept the same pronunciation. And there's a small side of me thinking, we're really Swedish, but we're not. <laughs> I'm not Swedish. I don't look. I don't look very Scandinavian. That's, I'll put it out there. No, you do not. No. no. So, so yeah. So Dario Antonio Luigi Francesco Illari is my full name <laughs> with the grandparents' names and then my confirmation name. But yeah. Extremely Italian, yes. Extremely Italian, but born in born in London, East London. Fair enough. Now, so I mean, you do some of these days. You do some amazing things. Your what's your exact role? Like, I saw a boss of of Jealous Gallery, but I'm sure you have a more proper title. No, do you know what? Is that but everyone when we kind of started, everyone can choose. Everyone said, oh, "I want to be this." I guess you can choose whatever name you want to be. So some people, it's like it's um creative director this is jess who kind of has been with me from the start and some people go from you know so they choose them but on my card i'm the only one i don't have anything i'm the founder i started it but yeah so i don't really have i think director that's why i have my sign off actually that's what i just have as director but let's go back a little bit so like so how did you even get into the creative fields because like i know you're a, a, an artist yourself and the sort of like how did you get into it were your parents creative some schooling like what was your path well i, I suppose it was i mean i was brought up in in well just around the corner in east london at the moment i'm from shoreditch in our building my parents had a cafe working man's cafe they immigrated over and for them, art was the last thing that they, they, they wanted their, their child to do, I suppose. You know, immigrants who come over, they, you know, they were farmers. And so I suppose what they actually want is, you know, to prove that they, they have made it to the family back home and, to, and for themselves is that their kids have an office job, you know, working in a bank. Um, they're working in a bank, a solicitor, a doctor, an architect, that kind of, that kind of thing. And it's all kind of, and it's kind of goes across all, all, all immigrant families, be it Bengali, be it, be it Irish, be it thing. You know, that's what they hope for their kids. That's not an Irish or an immigrant specific thing, actually. Every parent wants I, that for their yes, kids. Yes, I guess, yes. But yes. But I suppose what I mean is like the ones that stayed back because they had, were still working on the farm, they kind of almost expected the kids to carry on working on the farm. But when they were here, they were in this new place, all run the cafe. 
But yes, you're right. So I, ca- I came over and I loved art and I loved art. And I was kind of, was I good at it? I don't know. But I loved art. And But for my parents, when I did my O-levels, it was O-levels where kind of the exams that you do when you're 16 in England, they just didn't want me to do art. So I did Italian and English literature because I knew that, you know, I know the land, you know, I, I, I grew up knowing it as being, having spoken Italian at home and English, you know, and there still was that creative side, which was some, somewhat acceptable. So I love words. I, I, love, I love the weight of words. And it's that kind of purest of all the arts in a way. But, um, yeah, art is something that, that I've, all, I've always loved. And so when I'd go to Italy for the summer holidays, in Italy you don't have piggy banks. Where you guys are, you have piggy banks. We do have piggy banks. Piggy banks, right. Okay, now, in Italy they have these kind of, like, there's kind of very classically shaped little amphoras. They're little amphoras. And in Italy... They're called salva dinai, money savers. And you save up till they're full, and then you smash them open, you make a wish, and you spend the money on good things. Now, I'd go to Italy, and with friends, we'd always sit there painting. We'd paint them. So I'd always bring some over to, to London. And then I started, um, every summer, I'd drive over, drove over to Italy, and I'd fill up the boot of the car, about 100 of them, paint them, and then sell them in Camden Market. And they would do, did really well. But then I'd go back to my, to my other jobs. And then I kind of met a girl, Australian. You know, she moved in after about two weeks. And she, uh, because I still had a few a lot around the house, because, you know, you could only do a market stall if you had like 50 or 60. And the last two, three weekends, you know, you'd have 10, 15. So I'd just keep them for the next year for when I'd go to Italy. And she said, what are these? And I said, oh, these are little money pots, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I did well for them during the summer. And she, of course, she had a business degree. And she said, I think we could do really, really well with these. I went, oh, okay. So we, we bought a thousand. We haven't shipped over from Italy. And these little kind of dusty terracotta things. And I hand painted them. I showed her how to paint them. We'd paint them on a wheel. We paint, and then we, and then we, we started to sell them at markets. My brother helped me, helped me. Her sister helped, helped, her, helped her. And we were running all these four markets. And it was all cash. And this was like 20, 25 years ago. And you know, never kind of feel sorry for people who do a market stall. You kind of think, oh, they can't do very well. You know, especially in November and December, you know, and this is kind of, as I said, about 25 years ago, we were just every, each market stand on each day, and we had four of them on Saturday and four of them on the Sunday, they would each bring about 500 pounds. If, and on the last weekend, a lot more. So it was 2,000 pounds, 4,000 pounds every weekend. This is 25 years ago. But then in January, it slows down. And then Jackie said to Jack, I call her, but her name's Jackie. She said, she goes, that was really good. So we carried on from the next year. And she said, right, now we have to start doing trade. We have to doing trade fairs to distribute. I mean, she thinks big. I was like, Why? what's the matter with this? This is really good. She goes, no, no, we're going to do trade fairs. And we're going to start selling to shops. And we did. And it just grew and it grew and it grew. And in, in those 10, 12 years, it came that we had a place in Tottenham and we were selling about, it ended up selling about 7,000 a week. Just so many, just so many. We had 35 people. We were distributing in Japan, Australia, America and Canada and then selling to all the big garden centers here. And for a moment, they, they had their time. They had their time. They were just like, wow. And then 2008, the, the Lehman Brothers crash, 
And that changed everything because people bought in a different way. Before, I'd go do the fairs at Christmas and they say, oh, Daria, right, we're doing really well. Can we have a carriage paid order, which is like 36? Can we have a carriage paid order every, every other week in November and then every five days going all the way, stop at the 15th of December. If we need to double up, we'll give you a call. Perfect. And people would pre-order. What happened with the Lehman Brothers? Because it's, 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 that, it's that, 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 um, the worry, the, the uncertainty in the market. People didn't pre-order and buy. They'd buy as they sold. And that was the biggest change. And we had to respond. But they're hand-painted. And so people would phone up on the Monday and say, right, we had a great weekend. Can we have some more? And I said, well, why didn't you order for the, oh, no, the next weekend may not be as good. So that was the problem. That's where it changed. And, and part of the money that, that I would use that I would use from, from, from the company it was called Terramundi, by the way. Terramundi, Latin word for earth well. So, and I used the money because I always loved art and I loved Warhol. My two greatest loves were kind of Warhol and Canaletto. And I know they're kind of very uh, odd. <laughs> no, they are. It's because we were primary school, the teacher, you know, took us to, took us to the Tate Modern. And then they had one of Warhol's Brillo boxes which is this sculpture, and it was on the floor. But my mum and dad had a calf. They would buy the box that looked exactly the same, but with Brillo pads inside. And I was looking at it, and the teacher was saying, oh, Dario, are you, you, you keep looking at this. And I was saying, I don't understand why this is here, miss, because my mum and dad, you know, buy Brillo pads, and it's, a, and, it's, and it's in a box like this. She said, it's not a box. I said, well, it is a box. She goes, well, it's not because you can't put anything in it. It's made of wood. You can't touch it, but you, there's no way of getting at it. And it was just, and it was just, I just kind of wandered around and bless her. It was called Miss O'Connell. And she was from Liverpool. And she and I walked around and she goes, well, think about it. What is it? You know, you've got paintings on the wall. And then it hit me. It was this moment. I went, it's a sculpture. And it was that moment that I thought, oh my God, this is a sculpture. And it's the first time, you know, as a kid that you kind of, you know, you think of sculptures, these big marble things, you know, you know, very kind of, you know, from the Renaissance. And this was this moment that I just thought, fuck, oh, my God, this this is sculpture. And then I looked into Warhol and that was one of the moments. And another time we went to the to, to the. For the National Gallery, and they had Canalettos, and a lovely, lovely teacher or, or, or curator who showed us around. There's only about three, four of the kids who turned up, and she's kind of spoke about Canaletto and you know all these kind of views of Venice, and you know the masks, the masks that they used to have, the masquerades, which was the, the which they had before Mardi Mardi Gras. It's like their version of Mardi Gras before you had Lent. And where everyone wore masks, so everybody was was equal. So you couldn't tell if you were rich or you were poor. And then they spoke about the vistas of Canaletto. And his dad was um he was his canale, which is actually means canal, but he was a theatre producer. And so his son, Canaletto, which means little canale, that's what it actually means, Canaletto. He would do he would do the, the stage sets. He grew up doing the stage sets for 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 the for his dad's plays. So that's why he's so good at these vistas going in. And so, and you know, they're all part of the grand tour. So all the English aristocracy would go to Venice, they go to Rome, they go to Florence. And basically they were tourist pictures. But what, what Canaletto did, because that was his market, you know, he would paint them. But if there were shops that were ugly, he'd paint them out. So what you're getting is his real idealized view of, of Venice, of this, per, this idea of perfection, because he just painted, his first painting sets, he just knew how to paint that vista, but also just paint the things that he wanted 
to make it even more desirable, more sellable. And they're the two things that got me into art. And when I had the money, I kind of thought, I want a Warhol. I want to buy a Warhol. But Warhol screen print. You know, I couldn't afford an original. But I loved the soup cans. And so I'd saved up. It was $3,000. And it was before internet. You know, some kids don't know. There was a time before internet. And then, died. you know, we are of the age. We know. We know there was. And people go, wow, there was a time. There was no internet. And even that seems foggy now. But And so I'd have to make calls. And i say, look, I'm after this. And then they send you pictures. And then we had dial-up. And then... So we had arranged for, for myself to go over. And I went over, $3,000. And I couldn't afford the tomato. So the flavor I bought was hot dog bean. Not the best of flavors, but, you know, <laughs> no, no. No, because they were done in two portfolios. So but there was 10 in the first one. Tomato is the one that still people, oh, it's tomato, which I get. So I went over and I, and I bought it. But then I'd kind of $5,000. And there was also Keith Herring there. And so I bought a print from them, and it's a dealer called Dom Tagliatella. He's in, he's a Dom Tagliatella. He's like Italian American. He was a big guy smoking cigars, and he was brilliant. And I still see him when I go to New York, he's kind of very much older now. You know, he's got the suits, and he's still the same, and he's brilliant. He's like real Manhattan dealer. So I bought that, bought those from him. But then I'd kind of push my credit cards too much. And I kind of, with, with my partner, I said, look, she goes, look, we're going to have to sell them. I said, well, where do you sell these? So, because I didn't really know the art market, so we had to sell them at auction. So I sold them at Christie's. But when I went there, I mean, I bought them for, let's say, £3,000. With the exchange rate, it'd be equivalent, or $3,000 equivalent. They kind of sold for nearly three times as much. And I, when I kind of, you know, and I remember going there, talking to the guy then, I said, well, I guess that was lucky. And he said, why? What do you mean? He said, well, just that, you know, I bought them for $3,000 because, you know, they were like provenance, so I get the bill of, you know. And he said, well, no, that's what they go for. And I said, but why wouldn't people, and this is my naivety, but also that kind of, I said, well, why wouldn't you just go to, to America? He goes, oh, people don't want that. People want to come to Cork Street and they want to buy them here or, the, or Cork Street or at auction houses because they know that they're getting the real thing. You know, now on the internet, you can type in everything and find the, you can find the reality, the price of everything. The, and, but then you have to go to places that you trusted. So then I thought, I had this money. And, and I said to Jackie, I said, Jack, why don't we go over and just buy some more? Because I can buy now. I can buy two and have money left over for the one. So we went there, bought two, had a bit of a holiday, came back, doubled by free, doubled, and then kept and start built up my own collection. Yeah, and that's what we did. And then then jealous, after the Lehman's Brothers crash, um, that's when I kind of thought, do you know what, I sense things are changing. And I said to Jack, I want to open up a print studio. Because I used to do, I went and studied, I didn't study, I went to kind of not evening courses to do uh, silkscreen printing because I was kind of looking, that's how Warhol did it, that's how Keith Herring did them. And, you know, and it wasn't really a cool thing then. I kind of went to the Working Man's College in Camden. And, yeah, and that's how I got into screen printing. Hmm. I'm not even sure. You just shared so much. Like, that was so easy. I just wound you up with one question. <laughs> yeah, no, sorry. On. I can't stop. Once I start. No, no, it's great. Okay, so, well, 
okay, so you then you created Jealous. And first of all, it's a great name. But second of all, like, so now you're doing screen printing. So like, why screen printing of all the different mediums you could have chosen at that time? You know, I mean, I love screen printing. I've done it throughout my life. My, my father's a priest. And when we were young, he, okay. we used to do screen prints as like uh, church events and stuff. We nice. would make posters and shirts and all kinds of stuff like this. So like I've been doing, my dad used to hand cut his stencils with an exacto yeah. blade in, in newsprint. Yeah. Paper cut stencils. That's what we still do. Mm -hmm that you know and when we do live printing we still do that and um, screen printing is because i mean it is because that's how warhol did his prints they were screen printed and so and also i mean now in retrospect i'm glad i chose it anyway because etching you know etching and it would block prints i love the aesthetic but the work involved you know i'm kind of and then kind of that that's that's really why and i'm not a great screen printer if i'm completely honest with you but uh, in the studio now, the, you know, the, we've kind of really raised it to this level, which is like kind of quite, yeah, we're, we're really good at what we do. Now, I, I'm not of that level. But uh, uh, so I got the keys. I got the keys to, to Jealous because I kind of was going to get it before, before, before the Lehman Brothers crashed. But then I actually got the keys to Jealous the day the Lehman Brothers crashed. And it was like, oh. Oh, <laughs> it was like, oh. And then there was a, a guy we used to do screen-printed T-shirts with. He used to run a company called Toxico. His name was Jez. And he used to do these anarchist T-shirts. Now, I used to help him out at Camden Market. when it, and He's still got a place in Tottenham, and he was part of this um, hot rod, tattooed crowd, psychobillies. It was cool. And I told him that I wanted to do this as a, you know, as a print studio. And he was doing T-shirts. And he still does the Las Vegas clothes show. I haven't seen it. But I still go online to check if he's still around. He's still, he's still doing it. And he said, yeah, do you know what? I'll come in business with you. But anyway, that aside, the T-shirts we used to sell. And when we stopped, you know, they were his T-shirts. But I'd help him sell them. I'd help him kind of rack the T-shirts. But I had found one in my car, which I used to clean the, the back of the windows. Now. Which is ages ago, and you look at it and you kind of think, wow. And you know, the, this is how much the world has changed. The two t shirts that sold the most that we kind of seen, all the kind of, you know, the Camden market, but it was slightly more alternative. It was one that was a picture of a, of, a, of, a, of a Glock handgun, it was like a pistol, but it was green. The color was green on a black t shirt, and it had the word. Greenpeace, but P-I-E-C-E -E on it instead of Greenpeace. Greenpeace. Kids loved it. They fucking that, that t-shirt just went, 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 went. But then there was another one. This is the one that I found, and I remember looking at it when because I thought, you know, you always keep something in the car because my it's got an old car, so it steams up. When you get into it, you have to wipe it down. And I looked at it and and I think you you cannot wear this t-shirt now. And what it was, you know, in England we had the IRA. Back uh -huh. in the 80s, and they were, you know, and their symbol was the balaclava. You know, the balaclava they pulled, pulled down. And this was a picture. So it had the balaclava on, and the words printed on top of it, which said, Terrorism is for the few of us left who aren't afraid to get our hands dirty. Now, I looked at that t shirt and I thought, <laughs> Oh my God, we were fucking printing these and selling these in, in Camden Mine. I thought, well, you can't do that anymore, can you? <laughs>
No, you would be put yeah. on some watch list. Yeah, well, yes, well, absolutely. But anyway, so this is Jez. And I phoned him up on the day I got the keys. And I said, Jez, do you want, he lived around the corner. I said, Jez, do you want to come down? And he said, he said, well, what do you mean? Okay, so I've got the keys to the place. We, we, this is happening. And he said, I can't. And I hadn't spoken to him for about two months because, because it takes so long to kind of, to get to exchange the contracts and to do, because we bought the place. He said, oh, I can't, Derek. I'm leaving. I'm leaving London. I goes, where are you going? He goes, I'm going to Zurich to open up a, a tattoo parlor. And I went, <laughs> I went, you're going to fucking Zurich to open up. How does that help me? And he goes, well, I hadn't heard from you for two months. And I kind of, I was getting bored here, you know, and da, 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 but he came back after. But anyway, so that, that was it. The Lehman Brothers had crashed. And Jez was fucking off to Zurich to open up a tattoo parlor. Maybe, I mean, I don't think he was on heroin because they love, he you know, they'll give you methadone in, in Switzerland. They'll keep you going. That's how efficient they are. They don't let you sleep. Like, Come on, keep going. But anyway, so I went home and I pulled up the car and I was like, what the fuck have I done? What, what have I done? And uh, two doors down where I used to live, there's a guy called Matthew, and he pulls up. It was Friday. I'm, I'm getting out the car, and he's got his bike, and he had his dog called Sid. And he said, and he stopped. He goes, oh, hello. I goes, are you all right? And we didn't even know our names, but he knew that I'd screen printing at home because he'd walked past with his dog, and I'd screen print in the front room, which is by the thing. So he knew that. And I said, I said, oh, you know, I thought I'll be polite. And I said, oh, so, you know, ready for the weekend? And he said, it's going to be a great weekend. And I went, and I went, it was a Friday. And I went, all right, so why is that then? He said, oh, I've just resigned from my job. I goes, all right. And what did you used to do? He goes, I was a primary school teacher. He goes, I goes, all right. I goes, so what are you going to do now? He goes, I'm going to take a year off now and just do the things I used to love or do things. And I said, what's that? And he said, screen printing. Now, and this is genuine. And I don't believe in fate. I don't. Thank you, God. But at that moment, it was like, what? All of this happened. And I'd never spoken to him. And I said to him, can I come talk to you? And I did. And he kind of worked for a screen print studio. They did Peter Blake's. And they did, oh, Peter Blake's the one that I remember. But then he also worked for another company um, that used to do the screen printed decals that you'd put on model airplanes, airfix models that you'd make, that you'd put them in water. They were screen printed. But then he was also, then he'd gone off to, to university and there he went to Manchester and it was part of the Hacienda days. And he kind of then became screen printing with a company there. He got addicted to smack, but then became a screen printer there doing billboards. They're all for the Hacienda. So they do all the Hacienda billboards. And he's, if you go to our website, it's Matthew Rich, and there's actually a little print of the Hacienda time, time sheet that, the, that they had. And I started it with, with him. Matthew was really, really good printer. I was a good front man. And so, so right at that, that start, when people say, go to a new print studio, I go, yeah, we're new, but we're just brilliant because we've been, you know, we've already printed for that Peter Blake. You know, we just kind of, I bigged it up. But to be honest, for two, three years, it was, it was, you know what? It was lucky that I had Terramundi that, that funded Jealous. That, that really funded Jealous. The money we made, it, just, it took about a quarter of a million pounds for those three years. 
until slowly, 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 slowly. But then we kind of started to get, then we got this big job from this, um, from, uh, funnily enough, Swedish. Oh, what's his name? Swe he's Russian, but a Swedish publisher. And he gave us a big job. And we were standing outside. By that time, there was five of us. And I was saying, and they were saying, that's a big job. And he paid us 50%. And they said, where are we going to do it? Because we'd already taken over the gallery and printing there. And I was standing outside having a cigarette. And I saw a for sale sign just about two doors down, three doors down. And it said flat for sale. And I said, we're going to buy that flat and turn it into another print studio. It was close to ours. so. I, I, I bought the flat, we got a mortgage on it with the deposit, and we ripped out this whole flat and turned it into this print studio. But, of course, we had the washout booth, so in, in this other, in Crouch End is where we started. So we'd have to come out the front and go along the pavement and then go up, open up the door and go up to this first floor. And there was just this fucking trail of wet and ink all the time going in. So you could see it from our door going about four doors down to the next place, and then people going up the stairs. After about three weeks of us doing this, I had a phone call. And uh, they said, oh, somebody wants to talk to you. And I said, oh, is, is this Dario Lari? I went, yep, speaking. He said, oh, you've just moved into, I don't know, 23 Park Road. Our gallery was 27 Park Road. I goes, yeah. And he goes, on the first floor, he goes, yeah. He goes, you're not living there, are you? And I went, no. He goes, get out. <laughs> this is after three weeks. So then I kind of thought, fuck. And so we had the place here in Shoreditch, whereas it belonged to, it belonged to my brother. But because I didn't really get on with my parents, they left the, they both died and they left the building to my brother. But he'd kind of said, look, let's go halves on it, but you've got to run it for me. So you pay me the, the rent for two floors and you can have the other two free. And he wrote it, which was lovely of him. He's 14 years younger, as he should have, because I used to change his nappy when he was born. And every, and <laughs> but anyway, he's lovely. His name's David. And so I turned that one, we turned it back into a flat and we rented it out, which I had to pay the mortgage. And then we moved here and we just moved into the top floor. So it's got four floors. So I moved into the top floor. And because all the deals that, were, I was, uh, that we'd been doing, I had about £70,000 in cash, in money, which I was going to do, which we were going to use to do the, the whole floor up. We had the front of the building. And on the ground floor, every time I'd go past, I'd look at it, and there was a cafe. There was a cafe there, and I'd look at it, and I thought, because we were just a print studio. Well, we were just about to open the print studio. And I looked at it, and I thought, if I could have a gallery as well, I would love that. So I'd always kind of, the guy was there, and the guy would be outside his Turkish. I was having a cigarette one day. He goes, hey, daddy. He goes, I'm going. And I went, you're going? And he said, yep. And he goes, and I said, so what are you doing with the place? He goes, what? I'm putting the lease up for sale. You know, so it's got so many years left. Even though my brother and I, at this point, own the freehold. Once you have a leasehold here in England, we can't kick you out because you have a right to stay. But because you had already a business, it's called, you sell it with a thing called goodwill. It's because, because basically you come into the building and already you can see the books and you're already you're earning. You don't have to build the building up. You can either make it better or kind of perhaps let it go worse. But you're, you're already starting that you're earning £2,000 a week. He wanted £70,000, which was the same amount of money. I went, and would you go for 70? He goes, yeah. I went upstairs, and I just got this lump of money, which is in two shoe boxes. I goes, that's 70000 He goes, there you go. And he went, you want to buy it? I goes, £70,000. 
And so it took about three weeks, and I gave him the money. And then, then of course, Jackie, she goes, this is all good and well, but you had that £70,000 which you'd written down to spend the money upstairs. But now you've got upstairs no money and another floor. And I went, we've just got to remortgage the house. <laughs> and Jack was like, fuck. But you know when you but the one thing we're we're no longer together. She was kind of but you know still the business my business partner. And to fucking thank God because she's the one who makes it. I have the ideas, but she's like really good with the money. She said, "Well, we can remortgage the house." Da, da, da. Yeah, and so we had a concrete floor, but it looks lovely. And you know when you come to London, you come see it, and that's it. And slowly we've taken all the whole building over, and that's where we are. That's an amazing story. I love it. I mean, it, that's the thing is like, you know, best laid plans and like, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But like sometimes things just happen yeah. the way they're supposed to happen. Yeah. Now, you said something earlier about that you don't think you're a good printmaker. Well, I, I'm I'm interested in what to you constitutes a good printmaker versus somebody who's not as quote unquote like good. Oh, well, technically, I'm I'm technically... I'm I'm not that good. Now, what I am really, really good at is seeing someone, to, the artists that come into us to, to look at the artwork. And really, the, a print studio it's 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 a it's an odd place. It sits in between the artist and a gallery. And so, what it is, it's a place where all bets are off, because there's always a frisson between a gallery and and an artist. And you know, and galleries and galleries will say, "Oh, Darren." Artists, all I'm doing is getting calls. Blah blah blah. Have you sold anything? Have you have you sold? Have we not sold that? Have you shown? How's that work going? Have you put that up? Did you put it up? What about that collector I put you in touch with? And he said they're always just fucking always asking, asking, asking. Then you talk to the artist. Then you talk to the artist. They say, My fucking gallery. They're doing a fucking art fair, and you know they said they're going to take the new body of work. They're not just taking the new body of work, and they say it's not selling. How are they going to know it's not selling if they're not fucking showing it? You know, and so they're, they're, there's a free song, shall we say, where when everyone's selling, oh, everyone loves everybody. <laughs> you know, the artist loves the gallery because oh, they're selling loads for me. The gallery loves the artist, oh, because he's so lovely. It's when things aren't right. But a, but a screen print studio. All bets are off. You know, I'm here to, to bond up with the artist and understand what they want from the print. Obviously, it has to be about selling. But, it's you know, they said, well, I want it to feel like this. I want it to look like that. I want it to get this across. You know, that's the artist. But then you talk to the gallerist. It's Dario. It's like, listen, I'm going to try and make it happen to sit inside your budget and we'll do it. Yes, we can do that. We can do that. We can do that. So, you know, and we're kind of intermediate. But what's lovely is that because... And that's also the other thing. When the artist comes in, you get you get kind of fine artists. You get David Shrigley, you get the Chapman brothers, but then you get Ben Iron coming in, and then you get young graduates. Whereas to the outside world, and it's and it's it's when uh, do you remember there was a song with Run DMC, and it was with the rock band as well. It was Run DMC and the Aerosmith and Aerosmith. Now, now the, the reason I'm using this example was because, again, as, as watching that, it, it have Run DMC, I don't know, it was Aerosmith first, and then Run DMC come in. Now, as a kid, you'd compartmentalise. What do you like? I like hip-hop. I like heavy metal. I like punk. I like indie. No one said they liked country and western at the time, but now even, but you know, but I don't mind country and western. But, you know, da-da-da, dinner. But then I saw them playing, and I was thinking, 
wow, how come they're playing together? Well, they're playing different genres of music. But, and that's what it is. It's like so many artists, people think, oh, art is a fine art. I wonder what they think about of Ben Ein. I wonder what they think about Grudge. When they come in, they're just artists. And they'll talk. So you get Ben Ein talking to kind of, you know, the director of Alan Cristea, because they're just all in that same gang. It's the art world. But from the outside, it has different faces. So why aren't I? So I'm good at talking to the artist and putting the right printer, but am I good Would actually translating their artwork into a print? No. I'll be honest, partly because I can't be fucking bothered because it's so, it's so intense. I know what it has to be done to make it good, but I can't be bothered to learn it properly. When there's people that are so much, they already know how to do it and they've been trained, you know, they started off with Matthew, who's no longer with us. He's still alive, but it's just not, not with, with Jealous. And so then, <laughs> sorry, Matthew. Well, it's about putting the, the, the right tool for the right job. And Absolutely. in this case, you're talking about like having yeah. the right person. It's a relationship. It's a relationship that people have, the printer has with the artist. You know, it's my job, you know, and they each have their printers. And the artists like that and say, oh, that was really good. And I would say, like, if, if it's Will or Jess or Tom or Innes, I'll say, and that is your printer. Every time you come, you will have them. You know, and they come in and they, cause they, they work together because, you know, they have to proof the print, you know. So we make the screens and then you prove the colors. Oh, can we just change it like that? And they have lunch together and they go, but for one week, they're this together. Then when the artist has okayed it, they say, yes, that's right. I'll run the edition. Okay, see you later. And they will come back to sign. So we have a proof, the artist, you know, the, or the, it's called a BAT, bon attiré, you know, good to pull. It's that this is the one that all the prints must look like. And then, you know, so it's a relationship. And it's one of those things. If you find a good printer and you like them, you go back to them. Same with a dentist, same with a mechanic, a plumber, electric. Do you know, they're those things that you want a good relationship with that you're going to use, you know, and that's what artists do. And so that's what I'm good at. And I'm good at making people feel friend at home. And that's the most important thing. It's just make people feel at home. Make people, you know, it's just don't, just be nice. Just fucking be nice to people. It's a, whoa, just be nice. And there was some Egon Rone. Do you know Egon Rone? He was a chef. It was like old chef. Anyway. It, Name's familiar. No, it was just this old school chef. And I was, I, I was at, I think it was Borders. And I was there waiting to buy books. It was at Christmas. You know, they always have books near the front. You know, those instant buys where you kind of, oh, $9.99. I'm going to buy that for them. And they had one. And it was like, restaurants that chefs love or chef's favorite restaurants, you know, where do chefs eat? I think it was something like that. Where does chefs eat? And there was one in Egan Rone and he said, what's your favorite restaurant? And he said, one that makes you feel at home. And that's, and that's the thing is that people forget so many galleries, so many things. They almost like to separate you to make you think, yeah, we, we have the knowledge rather than be all encompassing. Just, just, you know, and art is that problematic thing. It's like, if I say, you know, people come in, I say, oh, do you like that? And straight away, it's like, oh, 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 do I like it? It's just, not, I always say, look, it's not a loaded question. It's just not a loaded question. I'm just saying, do, do you like it? You know, and that's the thing. Like, ceramics is different. Do you like that pot? Oh, I don't like the way it dribbles. Because there's no, there's no aesthetic att attached to it. You can talk, oh, it's dribbles. I don't like the way, I don't like the way the colors. With art, especially if they're kind of coming to a gallery, they're a bit more, oh, oh, oh. 
Well, there is still that underlying like elitist and snobbery with it be not not even just within the art world but for the outsiders coming in you know trying to approach it there's of course yeah, yeah. absolutely and you know we deal with collectors and you know there's two types of collectors that they, they, they will buy sorry i, I was just going before i say that it's talking about what art, what what is art because i have to do talks about that occasionally what what is art what, what are prints and so we had a show I called it the ideal home exhibition, the jealous ideal home, you know, and they have exhibition. You, they used to do these fairs called the ideal, where all designers, they'd have all their wares, all their new designs called the ideal home exhibition. So we called it the jealous ideal home exhibition. Now I collect loads of things from, from charity shops. You know, I think you call them op shops. Goodwill. Goodwill, know. goodwill, right. Se- okay. sec- second hand. There you go, second hand. And so... I buy lots and lots of stuff. You know, I went for a phase of collecting little Japanese, um, little Japanese robots. Then I kind of went on ugly British 1950s vases. Then I like Swedish glass. Then I like toys. Then I like this. You know, I'd always collect, but just things out of the time, ephemera. You know, do you remember those little baby sham champagne glasses, little champagne glasses, baby sham brunt? And so I, and obviously the prices on. So we, we, Put the, I just filled up the whole gallery so it looked like a, 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 like a, like a, a charity shop, like a Goodwill shop. And people could buy all these things at the price that was still on there. It wasn't about it. But they came with, 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 with an essay written by Phyllis McKay. Uh, Phyllis McKay, she's a professor in philosophy at uh, London University. And she does causality, whatever that means. But she also wrote about, about, uh, about art, about art and, and about what, you know what it is, and, and she wrote this lovely essay. So when you bought this, people would come in and go, "Oh my God, that little game called Mastermind! I remember this game from the eighties. I used to love this." And they'd buy that. And then there was used to be this shampoo called Matey, which was done like a little kind of it was it was a little sailor's hat, you know, that kids used to love a bubble bath. And people, oh my God, I remember that. Or the little champagne glass. Oh my God, my gran had those. My mum had those curtains, kitsch pictures on the wall, an old clock, a little robot. Oh, my God. Now, and then they come with the essay. And it's, and it's the notion of things being an aid memoir, things that help that, that this thing takes you somewhere else. So people weren't fucking buying the, the, the shampoo to wash their hair. They weren't buying the games of play. They were talking because that was a portal that took them somewhere else. It reminded them of a, their childhood, which was their mother, their grandfather, their parents, their cousin. That time they went away on holiday, that thing. And they just remind you of, of these things. So you're not buying it to drink champagne or a vase. You're buying it because you think, do you know what? That reminds me of my grand when I was a kid. She always used to have in her kitchen. All those things. And it brings it back to that's what, that's what art is. You know, art is a portal. It's a portal that you look at it and it either does something to you and it takes you somewhere that you almost need that little thing to kind of get you in there, then it's worked. If it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's, you know, I always think you've got to connect with it emotionally rather than intellectually. You can have different discussions, but it's got to move you. And that's what it is for me. It has to fucking move you. And th- so that's what that show was about. And I don't know what we were talking about. I'm sorry. I, I go on, don't I? I know, I'm, I know what I'm like. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Feel free. It's great. Okay. Well, I, okay. I have a, some very specific questions about. Yes, and I will answer it. 
No, it, <laughs> no need. You, your stories are great. Don't stress over it. The, but like, okay, so uh, I have many friends who are printmakers and I've done printmaking off and on throughout my years. And one of the conversations we often have, because I'm also a professor, so we're right. often worried about like toxicity and, right. and the chemicals and all this kind of stuff, whether or not to use oils and blah, 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 blah. But also on the other, and sort of on the flip side, sort of a combination question with that is like, how important is using sort of what I would call like archival or good quality paper? Like, cause you're in the business, you're doing yeah. it now. So like, are people using the alternative inks? Are they using sort of non-traditional materials, non-archival materials? Like what are sort of the ways that people are utilizing screen printing these days? Okay, right. Now screen printing has had that kind of, I suppose in the last 15, 20 years has had that renaissance especially the more we've gone digitized, it's become that kind of, wow, you know, it's something real. You mix the inks. You, 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 you kind of, you make it on paper. That's why, do you know risographs? I do. I did a series on risographs. Right, I love risographs because that's aesthetic. It's like kind of a failed Japanese idea of making really good fast printing for the office, but too much of a pain in the ass. But it was like 200 in a minute. With drums. So you actually make a stencil, you put it in there. They only come up to A3 size, except there are about five A2 machines in the world. And I was going to get one because I thought, I love one. But uh, A2 size, it's interesting. But it was thousands and thousands. Now, that has become well, that. The drums would be incredibly yes, expensive as it, well. Really? And that was, that was the price as well. It, it is the drums. And you'd always want to keep the black. You don't want to wash out the black or the, or the CMYK colors. So you'd need about, you know, 12 drums, which are they like 4,000 pounds each. Really expensive setup, but A2, because risographs now are kind of A3, A3 so two, two times, so it's double the size of that. You know, imagine that. Then they become interesting at A2. <laughs> Just to be clear for the American listeners, uh, that's an A4 is an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper, and right. A3 is like a legal size piece of paper. Which is double, yes. A3, the smaller yeah. the number, doubles each size. Yeah, I'm sorry. Right. It's okay. No, no. I know it. I live yeah. in Europe, and but but not every listener understands mm -hmm. okay. that. So standard piece of paper, twice the standard piece of paper. Right. So with the inks, with the inks, when we started, I wanted, I didn't want to be oil based. I wanted to be water based. So our studio is water based. We're a water based studio. Right. The trouble with water based is that's what everyone learns with when they go to colleges. They go to college. They do courses. They do water based. So it's always been the, the lesser brother, shall we say, the inferior brother to oil-based. Professional studios are oil-based. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, and they're, they're, so we went to a lot of symposia, a lot of symposia on, on inks, and I, we got geeky on it and see which inks and what's the difference, what inks, which are, which are the best water-based inks, you know, and there's Lascaux, which comes from Switzerland, which is really disappointing because when we have this extender base, when you when you kind of mix the inks with this kind of gel and it smells, I don't know if you've ever used it, it smells of kind of almonds, almond paste, like Dr. Pepper's, right? And I was really disappointed with Matthew saying, I said, I love the smell. I'd go and smell it. He goes, you do know they just put that in there to make it smell nice. And I went, <laughs> what? I guess, but there's no, but he goes, well, no, of course not. And I thought, oh. <laughs> and that was very disappointing but they don't put that smell in to make it smell nice however water-based really really lovely inks 
really lovely inks and they dry very flat and they don't dry very quick. Less the trouble with water base. Sometimes it dries quick, quickly. But Lascaux inks, they take them a long time to dry. And then we went for TW, really good opacity. And then Speedball, we just used for, 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 for the blacks. Really lovely, fucking velvety, dense, dense blacks. But although if you just pass them with your nail, you just scuffed so easy. And when you make a print, you have to be difficult. And then once the print is finished, we have to kind of get glassine paper and put it on top. And then the print, again, turns it into a, into a pain in the ass. And one of the nicest, so we spend a long time to make them look good. And the, th the only difference is with oil base, that it sits on top of the paper. It sits on top of the paper and it doesn't sink into it. With water-based, it sinks into the paper and therefore the paper cockles. Cockle is when the paper does this. It kind of undulates. And so you have to go, go against that by making the paper thicker. You have to buy thicker paper. To, you know, but but water-based, it sinks in there. And so that was one of the issues. But we did, a, we did a show and we were next to Artisan. Really good printers. I think they print for, for they printed for, for Patrick Caulfield. They printed, they printed for, what's the woman who did Opar? She's in a, Bridget Riley. And they said to me, and I was talking to the woman there, runs it. She goes, Dario, because we were the new kids on the block. She goes, Oh, Dario. She goes, Are you starting to have trouble to buy the, the inks? I goes, Why? What do you mean? Oh, you know, everyone's going water based. And I goes, We are water based. And she went, Really? And she looked in, she called the others and she kind of, the, they all looking at, uh, looked at them thinking, wow, you can't tell. And that was the greatest compliment from a print studio that I kind of, that was oil-based. And when they said, oh, are you having trouble buying the oil-based? I said, well, we're water-based. And then for her to look closer and think, oh, my God, they looked like, you know, they looked like, you know, we, you have to play harder to get the aesthetic. You know, you have to kind of sometimes kind of put a slight sheen in it of the varnish in it. So to get that look. But, yes, yeah, so... Yes, we've managed that. You work harder to get the look that people that people kind of are used to, or that, to get that oil based. All right, within that question though, so let's let's dig into that one a little yeah. more pedantically. Yeah, so, yeah, like, I like that. <laughs> the you just mentioned like using Lascaux and using Speedball yeah. and using all these different kinds of brands. Like in my background, like when I did it, generally like people would have their favorite. Like they would have a brand and they bought every color in that brand. They used that brand. They thought that brand sort of was their thing. Is is or do you find that like you know like you were saying like speedballs black has certain characteristics that another brand's black doesn't have so do you like mix and match your different brands to, yeah. to, to create different qualities and criteria yes i mean the black we we can use tw we use tw as our mainstay that's our main brand and lascaux and speedball very very just very slightly but we can use we'll mix the extender which is kind of what, what when you put the ink in it just kind of stretches out the ink it's, it's, it's dilutes it's like a concentrate of you know cordial with water but you kind of mix it mix it down and we will use lascaux base to put into another ink because that dries more slowly and so when we're doing live printing you don't want it to dry quickly because it blocks up the screen so you want an ink that dries slowly, but then it's a pain in the ass when people want to take it. So we always take hair dryers and you hair dry them quickly. So yes, we do. The one thing, I mean, I suppose the only different, different thing is that TW, most inks dry flat. They dry flat. But what I like, what we use it about TW, and we use this, this other ink called Nyla Bag. 
And that actually is oil-based, but we just use that because it doesn't, as does TW, it doesn't dry flat. It's like when you paint your walls with, with, with paint, it dries, there's a slight thickness to the paint and it dries as a, and this ink does that as well. So it doesn't dry flat. So what's really nice, when you put it through a coarse screen, so you get more ink, like let's say if you want to put letters, you have a print and you just want to kind of just want, Dara, you know what, I just want, I want a red background, I want black letters, but I want them to look as if they're standing out. Right, perfect. You print the red, then you print, you can, you mix in the, the you mix in the you, TW, and you don't use Lascaux medium, use their medium, and then you print. And you just leave it there. And the more it dries, you print it again. You dries, you print again. You dry, print again. And it creates this very, very small. Each time it goes up like a, a twelfth of a mil. So after a time, but it, when you look at it, it has this, you kind of look at it and you think, is that sticking up? And when you touch it, you feel it. You can feel that it's created this ridge. And that's nice. So you can play around with, with the inks. So, yes, we do use, but on the mainstay, good quality ink, is, is TW. TW and Lasco are the ones we use the most. As for paper, we just use cotton. All the paper that we use is cotton. We don't use wood pulp paper. And there's a company called uh, um, John Purcell, and they distribute all the papers to all the big print studios. And um, they use a, a paper called Somerset. Now, Somerset, and it's made Somerset Mill. And and, she, and they said, and he said, oh, do you want to come to an, on a visit to see how the paper's made? And we're like, yeah. <laughs> so we went to this mill, and it's just so interesting. They use the water of the stream. Now, what they do is this, the third husk of the cotton, cotton bugs, the first one, they use medical things with the cotton. The second one, I think, they use T-shirts to make clothing. And the third, which is too rough, they just use it for paper. And so they kind of, put it into this big vat and they put water in and they put, I think it's called a size, which break, helps break it down, but it gives it that kind of tenacity, you know, that it stops, that it's, that it makes it gel together. And the water from the stream comes out and they said, and you know, the water goes back cleaner than, than, <laughs> than what it was. Okay. That's, that's good. And, and you just see it, they runs on the, on these big, do you know when you go to hotels, I don't know if they have them here, but when you go to England, you go to hotels and we don't toast in the morning, you put the bread and it's this kind of toaster, that's a grill that just rolls and it falls off the end. So it's continually yeah. going, not the toast you have at home, you pop them in, they pop out. It's like this, it's a, without anything on the top, it's just this grill and it keeps going along this grill. So the paper comes down and when you have the edge, you know, it's got the edge, it's kind of rough. It's called a decal. The paper's got a decal edge. And the decal is actually the edge of this machine or this kind of this grill that's going at the paper. And it drains out the water underneath and that goes back into the stream. And so that was really lovely. But what I really loved is that they have someone, and they, they comes in massive rolls, I think 1.5 meters, one and a half meters, which is six, six, well, actually, no, it's more than six foot. No, it's just about six feet. Yeah. Uh, like, because I'm six foot two and I'm 185. Oh, so. right. So six and a half foot. Right. Okay. And there's someone, because it comes in from the mill, you have lots of the insects from, from, from the, from the thing that in the paper. And so as it's rolling, he puts a little peep that then they have to be cut out. And he said, you know, it happens. And he said, but the Japanese, when we do export, they hate it. You cannot have, you know, if you have one insect. You could lose their whole, the whole order. They just won't order from, whereas sometimes, 
And there's something really nice because they're almost like they're preserved, like as in, you know, they're not just squashed. They're perfectly squashed in there. Like, you know, like you see, like you, like kids with seashells, sometimes you get stones, you break them, and you see like a fossilized thing. That's what they look like. And they had a whole box of them there, all the bits they cut out. And I was going through them. And I said to John after, I said, do you know what? I shouldn't have asked. What, what do they do with all those little bits of paper with the inside, all different types? Because they just bin them. They just chuck them. I said, you couldn't ask, ask. And he, and he said he did, but they didn't want to give them to me. Maybe because they thought that I was using it to say, look how bad it is. You know, I don't know why. I just like to see all these little insects. But that's the paper we use. And it is archival. And it is archival. So, yes, we do that. And a lot of people now are becoming so much more, more, more careful about longevity. Because when I used to buy these pop-art prints, it's people just putting things in front of windows. You know, UV light just fucking destroys things. The yellows go to mustards. The reds go to this kind of just like washed out kind of orangey. Blacks aren't so much affected. They're the two main colors. But they really get destroyed. And this is the whole argument now with people having digital prints, inkjet prints, archival inkjet. So they've got, a, but it's funny because we actually do framing. We've got a part of our company that we do framing. And the thing is, even when we used to get them framed, even if you use UV glass, UV perspex, you're not, or you've got plexiglass, you don't, they say you should never let it in direct sunlight. Direct sunlight, you can have a room which has got a lot of really light ambient light. But as long as there's not direct sunlight, it won't change the color. It's direct burning, you know, the sun going into, into, into it. And I was talking to a collector. He said, oh, Darry, do jealous, da, da, da. And he goes, oh, I've just bought, I can't even remember what he bought. And I said, well, and he said, I've got them in this big orangery where I don't know. It's like this corridor where it's just all just fucking just sunlight coming in. And I said, to, I said, oh, have you got it going in there? Because I hope they're framed in um, um, UV glass. He went, no. And I'm, but you know that's bad. He goes, do you know what? I thought it was just cheaper to change all the glass in all the house into UV. So <laughs> there's UV glass. So every window that he has is now UV. So he can get the cheaper glass, but it's all UV. Well, see, now I've often wondered about that because, I mean, I'm, I'm a photographer also. Yeah. So, like, this whole UV, you know, loss of quality, all this kind of stuff. Like, I'm not sure how much I truly believe that glass barrier is really going to protect it over yeah. the course of a lifetime. Uh, the thing that makes me think that is that when they say, yes, this has got 99.6% true view protection, and they say, but we still suggest that you don't put it in direct sunlight. And right. you kind of think, but why? If it's protecting it, we, why does it matter? Oh, well. <laughs> uh, well, it's still that 0.4% that's still going to get damaged. But also when people come in and they say, oh, can I have UV glass? And I say, well, where are you going to show? Is it direct sunlight? Because you shouldn't do that. Oh, no, it won't be. I said, just save yourself. You don't actually need it. They say, oh, but I want it. If you want it, yeah, that's that's fine. But yeah, our archival and even artists that the materials they use now, they're looking that they're more archival, that they're more they have a friendlier carbon footprint, shall we say? Which goes back to that the the like inks themselves, because at one point I was part of the like OSHA the the you know health and st safety standards yes. for the school, and they were talking about how we should tra even say stop using 
a water-based inks and go to like vegetable-based inks and these kinds of things. And I'm just like, I think that's a bit extreme. I think, uh, do you know what? It, I think that the truth is it's, okay, we made the decision with to go watering when we opened. And also, to be honest with you, part of it was cost. It's, it's actually, if you can get the inks right, the look right, it's just so much cheaper because you don't have to spend as much money on the whole air extraction, you know, because it does, it just it gives you a fucking headache. You know, it's it's so intense, and and then you have to have special washout rooms, and you you know the chemicals you use have to go into containers. It's just like this whole big thing. But I think it will come. We did do vegetable dyes for someone. You know, if you want that look. Uh, no, okay. What's what for I'm the saying? listener? He's giving a questionable expression on his face. Um, what do what do I think? I think. You have to work with it. You, if you kind of want the look of this really tight silk screen print, you're gonna, you can't do it. But maybe you can mix it in, and with you know, so percentage is that perhaps. But um, I don't think it's there yet. In the same way, 20 years ago, people didn't give a shit about vegan, about being a vegan, and so there wasn't that choice. Now the choice is has responded to the need or to the desire of people. It's not as if, right, we've got loads of vegan, now everyone turned vegan. People are turning vegan and companies, right, okay, how can we monetize the fact that they become vegan? Right, let's offer this, this, this. So the more there's an appetite for it, it will definitely come. I mean, we were good to do the, the, the screen, the, the water base, but I suppose, you know, it was partly, it was basically because it was cheaper. I'll be honest, it was cheaper. And I didn't want to be in a room breathing in fucking chemicals. You know, no one, no one did. It's a health issue, but, you know, it's that thing. It began with us. It's like, we don't want to be unhealthy. Well, I mean, even beyond that, though, I mean, it's still, it, it's the the speed of it, the, you know, the fun yeah. of the, 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 the process itself. Yeah. Like when you start getting too technical down like that yeah. oil base and all this yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. It's, it sort of sucks some of the fun out of it. Like to me, you know, we used to do it like in our basement as kids, yeah. like you, it's just fun. And, and when have you get, fun. Oh, sometimes when you get too serious with it, too technical to this and yeah. that, sometimes it sucks the life out of yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, that's the one thing I like when we do live printing, we do live printing at shows and we do paper cut stencils because here we do kind of, we do, we've done 104 color screen prints, you know? Yes. We've just done that, that level. And there's one, the one of my ones that I should have actually brought one down and it's, um, it's printed, um, by an artist called Rachel Howard. It's only seven colors, but you look at it, it just looks like a, it looks like a wet ink drawing and it's lovely, but it's a skill to do that. I love those kind of paper cut stencils and we just cut them out and you get people to print and people have a go with you and people have fun with it. And the last thing, and the one that we did not long ago, and it was like somebody said, oh, what are you going to be printing? We don't, and I said, I don't know. What we printed, it was kind of slightly, well, I don't know, was it politically incorrect? It was funny. Do you remember the song called Come On Eileen? Come on, Eileen. Sure. Yeah, I forget who who's um oh I forget what they're called, but anyway. I will Google it while you keep yeah, talking. Go ahead. Right, and and so we did this one print. You know, come on, Eileen, and oh, I want to hear who it was now. It says Dexy's. Dexy's yeah, Dexy's Midnight Runners. Right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, Dexy's okay. Midnight Runners. Okay, and so instead of printing "Come on, Eileen," we wrote we, we printed. 
I came on Eileen. And um, <laughs> it was a winner. It was a winner. Everybody laughed. One or two people weren't too happy, but they were really good. And the way you always get around it, things like that, it's just, you know, and truthfully, because at the moment we're supporting the Tottenham Food Bank, because fucking this is all a bit fucked here at the moment. We just say, once you say, yeah, I know, it's not, yeah, I know, but all the money goes to the Tottenham Food Bank. So I, we kind of, we can do what we want then. We can do what we want. <laughs> but yeah, I like, and it's one color paper cut stencils. And they're fun and they're of the moment. And you, yeah, you get a blade, you cut it out in the newsprint. And it's just fun. It's just fun. Indeed, yeah. Now, okay, you're, again, like, I'm fascinated because, you know, I'm I'm from academia and all yeah, this yeah. kind of crap. Like, But you're literally, like, boots on the ground producing and selling and engaging with all the public and all this. And so I've got lots of questions about, like, editions. I'm always fascinated by, like, because there's this, like, ebb and flow. Like, at one point, there's, like, do a big edition. Then there's this sort of do small editions and, like, and then tiered pricing or not tiered right. pricing. Like, like how, what, what, what's, uh, what's the current favor on all these kinds of ideas of editions? Let's go for tiered pricing. Now, we make lots and lots of editions. And really, I only tier prices, if you go into my website, it's about 400 different artists. Only tier price for two artists. One, Chris Levine. Chris Levine, he's famous for having done the portrait of the Queen with her eyes shut. But he likes to have the prices tiered. He likes that. And he's always done that. So I, 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 I do the prints for them. I publish. But he kind of more or less, look, Dara, I want to sell at that price. You know, the first, the first 25 I want at that price. The next 25... And I'll just say, whatever you want, that's fine. I don't fight people too much. You know, because but the artists, you know, I know their market. Then the other person that I tear with is David Shrigley. David Shrigley, Turner Bryce nominee, he did blah, blah, lovely artist. And again, when I started to make the prints for him, I had to, again, I had to fall into, you have to fall into what he said, look, Darren, I'm already selling at galleries. That's the price they sell the prints for. That's that's the, the you know, edition size they 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 already do. So you have to fit in with people. You have to fit in. So that's the thing with tiered pricing. But wait, okay, wait, I have a question with even oh, within Yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is like, so let's say somebody did an why edition of 100. Well, no, it's not why do they do it, but like my question, like, okay, when I was young, like, and I started collecting my own works and, and sharing and all this kind of stuff, I like buying artist proofs which is right. you know, pre number one. And I also, I'm a huge fan of like number one. I, if I have, Everyone a, if loves there's something, number one. Yeah. If I can collect a, a, an edition of something, I want number one, but yet under the idea of tiered stuff, like number one is the cheapest and number 100 is the most expensive. Yes. So like why that okay. seems backwards to me. Right. Okay. Right. We're in the studio and we kind of make the prints. Now the number one, every time some, a lot of artists, they, they sign, and they say, Derek, can you can you can you can you number them? Absolutely. So what I'm saying, it's the number one is the number one by chance. It's not the first one that was ever printed. You know, basically, you print the first color, it goes down, it goes to the bottom of the pile. Then you then you come, you get it, and it stays at the bottom. And then so it's just by chance that when you number it, and I sometimes when I number them, I look at it. 
can I number them backwards so when we sell them, the number one is on the top, you know. So if it's an addition of 100, I'd go 100 of 100, you know, 99 of 100, and you put it on the pile. So when you sell, your number one's already at the top. When you get to the number one, you write number one. I look at it and I was thinking, just by, you happen to have been the number one just by chance, just by chance. You are just by chance number one, but you are wanted by so many people now because you are the number one. But there is no reason why you're, you know, it's just chance. I agree. And it, technically, it could not be the best one because it could have gotten mixed up in the pile. Maybe it was number 99 that was printed, but it got shuffled around. Absolutely. But, but my wonder is, is like with this tiered printing or pr- right. pricing thing, number one is literally the cheapest of it, them. Well, it, is, well one- it is. But, okay, it is the cheapest. But it's uh, but that's not to do with the numbering. But also, okay then, but also when you sell at auction, will a number one sell for more than a number 12 or a 13? The only time I've seen that happen, is funny enough, is with the number one tomato soup can by Warhol. Because the standard price by Legitimately. Most, legitimately. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the one I've got the number because that kind of started off so many different things. But really... There's a number one. Maybe you'll sell it for a bit more, but not really. Does an AP sell for more? Not really. Not really. So the reason with tiered price, so, okay, with tiered pricing, it's which I don't really like. Also, I'm lazy, but the reason people do it is really, and genuinely, is to give people fucking fear of missing out. The fear of missing out. Oh, my God, I'm really going to buy it. I'm really going to buy that. But then it also sometimes has the, 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 the opposite of thinking, oh, I've missed it now at, at the first tier. Oh, what's the second tier? Oh, the first tier was 500. This is seven. Oh, I don't want it anymore. I don't want it. So sometimes it can be act differently. But the thing is, is once people, it has a secondary market that people see it going to auction, then they think, oh, right, I know they sell them for five, six grand. So they become slightly irrelevant. And then, the, the first, second, third tiers go quite quickly with some artist, David Shrigley. Then they slow down. Then they start going to auction. They go for more. Then they sell again. People see at auction. This has been underpinned at auction. I don't really like it because it is it is kind of making people, you're going to miss out. You're gonna, Come on, come on. And that is, I don't like that. Buy it because you like it. And, you know, and a lot of artists... Some that won't, and it becomes more from the street art crowd, not so much now. I remember a street artist, quite well known, came to us and was saying, Dario, oh, can, um, can you, could you give me a quote on um, 100 prints? I went, yeah, yeah. And he showed me the image. I go, so it's going to be so many colors. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, um, right. He goes, yeah, print 100, but I'm going to do it because it's going to be an edition of 150. And I said, well, do you want me to quote you for 150? And he said, no, a uh, hundred. I goes, well, how does that work? And he said, well, I'm going to number one to 50 and then 101 to 150. And I goes, I, why would you do that? He goes, oh, because I'm pretty sure I can sell out a hundred, but I don't know. And I said, I'm not doing that. That's bollocks. I'm not doing that. No. And you kind of get that. And it's more of that street art crowd that are more concerned that if you don't sell out and you don't sell out quickly, then you're not as good as you used to be or you're not good. Whereas you get big artists, you know, like kind of, well, you know, Tracy Emin, or you get this thing, 
you can see some of her editions that have just been there for quite a while. And just because they haven't sold out in that first month. Well, now she is, though, because she got this cancer scare, which she had cancer and she's fine. But so many people are just going, quick, get them now before she died. Get them. Get in there. Come on, boys. And it's like, fucking hell, you know, the world. But so, so, yeah. So I forgot what I was saying. But anyway. We were on tier, uh, pricing, tiered tier, pricing. Yeah, and tiered pricing. And so that's yeah i don't really like tier pricing but i'll play the game and i'll do tiered pricing i'll do tiered pricing but it is it's done for, for fear to making people you know the whole thing you've got to buy it now and that's the one thing i don't like buy it if you love it agreed but but what about edition sizes mm. like because this has been i'm again i'm a photographer so like in photography it used to be that we should do big editions you know back in the 80s and 90s and then now of course i'm hearing it's more like do editions of like three five or seven prints and that's it and be done with it so like is there that similar sort of fluctuation in sort of edition sizes in the screen printing world once you kind of get over, and I don't know why they're in 25s, but I think once you go over 125, you know, it kind of becomes a bit, yeah, it's limited, but it's not, you know, 125, 250, you know, it becomes that real. And it's also, if you have smaller editions, you can, we're actually with an artist right now called Charming Baker. There you go. That's what we're doing right now. Artist, an old friend, really good. And we're just doing these prints. They're going to be a kind of, 36 by 28 inches. Okay, 90, you 90. You don't have to do inches for me. Okay, right, 90, 90, but well, it actually be by 70 by about 85, 85 centimetres. And we were just talking about it, and I was saying, look, it's really, really nice. It's quite big. And he said, yeah, let's not do a big edition. I said, look, we can do 25. We can do 25 plus 5 APs, 3 APs. And also, traditionally, you don't do more than 10% of the edition. You can do up to 10% of an edition of APs. So say it's tradition. So if you do 100, traditionally, you can do 10 APs. Some people number them, one of 10, some people don't. But that's how it kind of works. And so, you know, 25, it's almost, if you were to do the same prints of 50, and at 25, you're 25, it's almost, well, he wants to sell them for like 700 pounds. Okay, 700, but he's got a market, 750. If you do an edition of 50, then you kind of go, feels a bit much as 50 of them. So it's almost exclusivity. You know, you're, you're making that number to fit the price. It's that kind of balancing act. You know, could you sell 50? Yeah, you could sell 50. Six, you'd sell them all at 500. Yeah, it feels a bit thing. What about, yeah, I could sell five. You'd sell 20, half of that at that price. In my mind, I keep thinking like there's sort of like a backwards way of doing that for a lot of creative people where they basically sit down and say, okay, I want to make 5,000 pounds. So if I'm going to make 50, I have to sell them for this amount of money in order to make 5,000 pounds. So like it's sort of, you know, saying like my end goal is to create this amount of income off the entire edition and then decide on the the amount of the edition and the price of the edition to sort of backwards to get to that end amount of money that you desire to earn for the work. Yeah, no, yes. But also, it's also that selling out. There aren't many people that kind of will get an edition of 50 will sell out. Even well-known artists. We work with the, And it's all to do with the image. It's to do with the image and the price. And it's those things that kind of do well. And the name. The name, the, what it looks like, and the price. If you get those three factors right, it's like, fucking, that's like 
you've, you've created fucking meths, crystal meths of the highest degree. Yes, you have to get the good image, the right price. And so many young artists, they say, oh, let's sell it at that. And I say, you know what? That, that's really expensive. Once you charge something at about a thousand pounds, you've opened up such a big, big choice of so many artists you can have. You can buy a little Tracy Emin print, you know, that's not a great one, but you can buy one of them. You've opened up that, 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 that door to so many other things for a thousand pounds. Why are they going to buy yours? You've just fucking graduated. No one's heard of you. You know, all you have is that image. And I always say, listen, it's best to sell 20 at 200 pounds than none at a thousand. Because you, when you're young, you just want to get them on people's walls. You want to get them on people's walls. That's your point, to get them out, to get them out, want people to like them. What people also like with additions, they love hand finishing. Fucking can't get enough of it. <laughs> Bit of hand finishing. But they do. And it's nice because the artist has touched the work. He's made something. And, you know, and it's nice. And sometimes artists say, oh, maybe I can do that and I can fit. Please, people like that because each one, though it's an addition, there's that something, there's a nuance from the artist. Yes, they're signed in pencil, they're all signed, and the artist has worked with us and he's worked with but he's actually got his hand. And there's something lovely about that. And there's something unique. Each one is slightly different. So, and people, people want that. And in a way, because I'm a collector, I don't overthink it. They're the kind of things I'd like myself. And then some artists say, oh, shall I sign all? Maybe it ruins it. Uh, you know, shall I sign on the back? What do you think, Darren? I'll say, I always prefer it when they sign my editions on the front. I do. You know, I do. Because I'm looking at the signature, and it's as simple as that. Let's not overthink it. Oh, aesthetically, you know, it's much cleaner. Yeah, but people want to show their, oh, is it signed? Yes, look at it. Fucking look at it. It's signed, it's numbered, and it's, people want that. Give people what they want, you know, unless, unless they really have a thing about it. It's like David Shrigley, he signs and numbers on the back, but sometimes he very, he doesn't, he doesn't ever have a border. So when the print, he doesn't like borders. So the, the print goes up to the image. So it's painted up to all with, and he, you know, you can still sign it. But he, he said, you know what? I, I don't, I like, I don't mind signing them on the front if there's white, white paper that hasn't been kind of filled in with ink. But I prefer, but as they're all the same identity, he always makes them the same size. I'd rather just choose one thing. And so he always signs them at the back. And that's what he does. I have this thing. Okay, so I went to school in San Francisco, and there was a place called Crown Point Press there. I do know, you know Crown them? Point Press. Yes, I do. One of the things I loved about Crown Point Press was that they had this entire sort of, I don't know what it was, a residency or some sort of thing where they brought in artists who didn't work in in paper and printmaking processes and had them do works on paper. I loved that That's just good. because it was it was the idea of taking like a sculptor or a painter and making them sort of work in a different medium and think differently yeah. about it. Like, so do you find that sometimes the, the not professional screen printer, so even your street artists and all these other kinds of people, when they come into printmaking, do they, do they change? Do they do di differently? Uh, like, or, or are, is it like, are the, like the professional screen printers the sort of the better people that work with screen printing, or are the people who just sort of don't know the rules of what they can and can't do the the, the non traditional people sort of more exciting in the process? I, I think one when people come to the studio, we always you know they you know and this they're kind of people quite honest, and again it's that making people feel at home. They say, "Listen, Dara, I don't really know 
how you know how to go about this i'm thinking of this image and then you just showed them prints that you've made before listen we can do that oh my god i didn't know you could do that yeah yeah you can do that you can make the colors you can create a third color or we can deboss it we can do lots of different and so they're just you're giving them knowledge you are giving them knowledge but you get two types of people that come in one that people love and, and also street artists they are supposed are the ones that get it the most in the sense because screen print is stencil it's stencil you know you make a screen with the gap they cut down stencils and it's the same then they look at it and they think oh you're just making a stencil yes that's exactly not just but <laughs> on but, paper yeah 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 you're doing a stencil on paper to spray on the wall you're doing it on a screen to press ink for but it's the same thing i suppose what they don't understand is the nuances you can have well there you can make a stencil to print over a stencil which kind of with with dots so you can have fades you can do different things but um, you get two types. You ones that that use printing for for um for a currency, shall we say, that they understand it. And there's others that just you know they they love the process. They love the process. So you get two types of people because it is you know it is it is when you're making twenty five, thirty, fifty, a hundred of something, you know you know it costs people a lot of money. You know it depends if you want colours. You know it can cost. For one color print of 25, 50, it's still going to cost you a thousand to two thousand. But that, you know, if you want five, six, seven, eight colors, 14,000, 15,000, you know, you have to think carefully. Yeah, you have to think carefully about it, you know. But then you kind of think, yeah, but it's 125 of them plus the APs. And, uh, you know, and I'm selling those for one and a half grand each if you're a big artist. Then, okay, that's 150,000. So that 14,000, you know, comes 10% of what you, what you get. Yeah, and that's and that's the rise of digital, and that's where digital fits in because now you get the big artists. Gerhard Richter did a big show of massive inkjets, massive inkjets, and artists now use inkjets. And you know, we're a craft. You know, there's a craft in doing silk screen printing, and you kind of think people say, "Oh, it's digital." Now I understand why young artists come in. They have an image, and it's so complicated. If you break it down to silk screen, it's going to be like twenty colors. And, you know, it's going to cost thousands. And you have to do it all. You have to print. You mix all the inks and the inks go off. So you do kind of have to print it all at once. And with digital, you still have to proof the colors, make sure that they're happy with the colors. And then you can print as they sell. It's still numbered, still signed, still it's addition of 25. But, you know, they put them online now. They put them on their Instagram and they can sell them. Oh, Dario, I've sold. Can I have another five? Yeah, and they come in, they pay, they sign them, and off they go. And we tick it off. That's how many they've done. You know, but the trouble is, it's like people kind of say, well, it's not the same, is it? And see, and I can argue for both sides, you know, being a screen print. It, no, it doesn't have that, that, that materiality. It doesn't have that process. It doesn't have, okay, but here's, and let me, because I used to, we used to kind of, we used to be in a band years ago and we used to play around with music and we used to use a software called Cubase. Cubase. Was, was, was a Cubase for mixing. First it was 24 track, then we went to Cubase. Now Cubase, was was this um you know it was a way of kind of mixing music it was mixing music digitally but then pro pro logic came along pro logic and then you'd have people in the music saying oh yeah oh that's nice oh Jack, what did you use to mix it it was like oh use cubits oh we're doing pro logic and it became this snobbery and it's this snobbery right so that's in the inside world now outside you and I we're going out we're listening and we're having a drink in a bar. I say, Matthew, God, that's really nice. And you think, God, who is that? You know, you don't go, 
Yeah, I would have liked it, but it's not recorded on Cubase or it's not recorded on ProLogic. You don't give a shit how it's recording. It's how it makes you feel. It's how that piece of music makes you feel. Well, oh, but I'll give you a balance on that because yes, like, if please, I walk please. into a, if I walk into an art gallery and I see a series of editions that are done screen printed versus a series of editions that are digitally printed, I would be willing to pay more for the screen print than I would for the digital print. Okay, okay, and <laughs> like, we're playing chess here, which I like. Okay, then, but you have an image that is screen printed and an image and certain a print, same series, same artist, doesn't matter. But you prefer the di the actual image of the digital. You're never going to buy the, the screen printed version because you don't like the image as much just because it's a screen print. You're not going to buy an image that you like less. I might, actually. Really? Well, they, well see, they... I'm a huge fan of sort of the hand of the artist, the, yes, the practitioner, okay. the, the, the artistry of the, the, the creation versus just hitting print on a computer. Like Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. I d yes. 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 Because I'm a screen print studio. I, I was going to say you should agree with this. I do agree with you, but but I also kind of, you know, it's like I argue. I'm arguing against myself. But I do think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 And I do agree. What I do agree is that sometimes we did. We, it's choosing the paper. Because going back to the paper is so important because there's like Sam. We did a print for someone. And he wanted this really, really smooth, kind of looks like, well, this really smooth paper. But the colors he chose, and it's funny, and I said to Sam, I goes, is that digital? He goes, no, it's silk screen. I goes, it fucking looks digital. He said, yeah, he wanted it's silk screen to look like digital. <laughs> I went, why the fuck would you want that? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But it did look like digital. But he wanted it silk screen printed to look like digital. Well, I still, and I didn't meet the artist. So I would have said, why? Why, why didn't you just go for digital? Because he wanted silk screen, <laughs> but he wanted it to look like digital. And it did. But it was the paper that made it do, it made it do that. What the main difference is, with, but now so many artists, they make it look like woodblock printing. And it's like, oh, what's it? It's, oh, no, it's digital. But the one thing that you can't do on digital still is that you can't get those fluoro colors. You can't get that. You can't get the whites. You can't get the wick sits above. You can't do. But we do a lot of hybrids. With some artists, they like the hybrids where they do digital. But then on top, they go, right, I like that image. Right, I want this, 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 this on top. And there's one we did an article, Miss Bugs. And it's digital with 16-color silkscreen print, two different types of leaf, gold leaf and silver leaf, and varnishes. And it's like. Yeah, it's it's. I don't know. We could have done it just a silk screen at that point. It would have been cheaper. <laughs> we kind of could because the trouble with digital is it runs through a machine, and you have to print that first. But because it's going through through a machine, it's even though you put crop marks on it, you have the crop marks. So when then you print the silk screen on top, you can see the crop marks because of the paper. It's on a roll. Paper stretches. Paper kind of goes, it has a grain. It goes long ways and short ways. And um, sometimes the paper paper stretch, it's different on a, on a roll. And because it's being pulled and thing, it has this kind of, you know, it does that. And, but, and that's also the one thing with paper. With the paper we have is this organic thing. When we get it in the paper, when we get it in the, in the packets, we put it on the drying rack. 
let it kind of relax itself into the atmosphere of where the room that you're in. You leave it in there for two days and then we can print on it because it's still stretching. It's finding its, its way in the room. And the worst thing, because we have a deep, we don't have, don't, we can see the humidity. Sometimes you have these kind of really muggy days. The paper will stretch, long ways can stretch. On a big print, it will stretch two millimeters. Now, if you want to do something about you just think it's fucking stretched and you have to make a new screen to accommodate that. You cut, there's no way around it. And that's one thing. A lot of young kids coming into screen printing, they've got to understand screen printing is a problem solving thing. It's a, you're, you're solving. It's like if you think, like if you've got a little dot and you're making the screen and there's a little dot there, you think, oh, I'll just ignore it and you carry on. It's not going to go away. You have to think, right, what do I do? All oh, right, I have to kind of block the screen. I have to spot that. Or there's a piece of it. I have to take it off. I have to remake the screen. You know, you have to, you have to kind of, in your head, your head, you know what you've got to do. But if you're not, don't want to do it, you just carry on. In this kind of like thing, it's going to be better. <laughs> but it's not. You just got to deal with it, especially when people are paying money for it. But I love it. I, I, I love it. I love it where art meets craft. That's what I love. That's why I love to do ceramics. That's why I like that. And, and artists, when they do come to work with us, and some of them say, when they're working from an original, they say, do you know what, Dara? It's, it's much, it's better than the painting because they do, they distill their ideas and they look at it and they perfect them and you can make them tighter, more precise. And my job is to say, well, what should I do? Because well, if you do that and you put that color, you're going to make that, that look darker, which is going to affect that or that. If you do that, it's my choice. I'm there to give you choices, but it's still the artist's decision. They decide. It's just for me to show what is available, what can you do. This is what you can do at this point, but this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. You, you make the choice. As a totally random aside, I have to say I'm incredibly envious of your job. Like, I mean, you've put, positioned yourself in this magnificent career where basically you get to work with the galleries, which of course all creative people like to work with those, and you get to work with the artists. And neither of their technical successes is, is relevant to you because you get paid regardless of whether it's sold or not so like you have this great place in the arts world that like that's incredibly envious to be i wake up fucking angst-ridden every morning we have a lift a couple i'm, I'm like hyperventilating because you have to keep the you have to keep it going uh, and i love what i do but it just take energy but oh, but we only do 50 percent paid work 50 percent of what we do is paid it's paid by galleries, it's paid by museums, it's paid by the artists. And the other 50% we publish, that means I fund the editions. I fund them. So 50% covers all the, all the bills. It's 70, 70, £75,000 every month to run Jealous. That's what it runs. With all the stuff. We've got three buildings to run all, all of that. We do the framing, we do the printing, we have studios. So that's the expense so we do have to bring the money but i still the other 50 percent i publish over david trigley and we work with primary school little kids we work with the ma's from the colleges and we do lots of lots of different things it's exciting i still like doing i love it because it's i mean i'm unemployable i don't you know i don't i, don't, I wouldn't want to do anything else but, you know and sometimes i always say you know, I don't really want to be me, but I don't want to be anybody else either. <laughs> Do you know, it's that kind of thing. It's like, oh, yeah, it's a stressful job, but I love it. I do. I love working with the artists. I feel at home with them. 
Do you know what I mean? It's it's a, it's a kind of world. It's like, and then you, I can see you get it as well. So you're talking with people that you know, a lot of the artists. It's like you know, Ben. You know, Ben. I've known him for ages. He fucking he drinks vodka for breakfast. You know, and it's I see him, and then we have a drink, and he goes, Daryl, I'm off the drugs," and I goes, "We're fucking having vodka." He goes, "Well, one step at a time." <laughs> and I'm like, "Right, okay." But but the the thing is, it's I feel normal in this world. Do you know what I mean? It's like we can sit there and they'll talk about, oh, fucking they're having a book. Because artists are delicate things. And I'm delicate. They say, oh, Darren, I'm just fucking, my head's just fucked. I'm not going through a good thing. I'm doing that. But it's like if you're kind of some, maybe working in an office, if people start saying that, they think, oh, don't talk to him. He's the weird. You know, here, everybody, everybody's a bit on the spectrum. Everyone's a bit damaged. Everyone are jealous. And therefore, it doesn't really matter. People are people. And, yeah, I, I don't know. I love it. As I said, I am very envious of your position. I think it sounds like a great career to have, well, from your perspective, fallen into, but like yeah. a great idea to be able to be involved in the arts without yeah, a lot of the pressure of like the, you know, like being an individual artist and it, are they going to love my work and all that? Like the, the joy yeah, of, of course, being able course, to like course, work yeah. with other people collaboratively. Yes. yes. And that's what you're right. That's, that's the part that I do love. And it is, people today say, oh, could you represent me? Because we have two galleries and we do the art fairs. And I say, you know what? The, the truth is when you, and it's actually Adam who runs a studio. And he was saying, do you know what? The truth is when, you know, when you're represented and they, they want that exclusivity, they, they need to guarantee you a living. They need to guarantee. They can't say, yeah, you can't show anywhere else, but we've only fucking sold Four, four originals or two. And you think I could sell, I could make more by going out. So you have to almost guarantee, you know, I don't want to use the word a stipend, but you, they have to guarantee you a, a, an income that covers your basic, but you know, your basic da daily living expenses, your, your, your bills, your car, your everything. Because otherwise you cannot expect that control in a way. But, I, but uh, I mean, again, but that's changing as well with so many artists now. Instagram is their new, they're, they're the new slides, you know, but that's where it is. They sell directly and they, I know. <laughs> but I'm, it, I'm nodding my head unagreeably. Yeah, I know, but that's, that's the way, that's the way of the, that's the way it is now. Yeah, it's the way it is. And I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just kind of thinking, well, that's the way it is. And so artists are expected to do things. And, you know, some artists really become a product. They, they become, and they don't even notice that switch over. Oh, like we're working with an artist now who showed at, um, with Banksy at Dismal Land. And he made an image which was shown there. And he did really, really, really well with it. But now he's known for that kind of those series of images. And so when you kind of you see him, he's doing a fair or he's doing a print. And he's doing, well, you see, they've got lots of, you know, he's made new additions. They're always the ones that have been seen before have, have, are the ones doing well. And these other ones, which are lovely, but people want that because it's, it's, it's tied into that. It's tied into Banksy. And so, oh, we reckon, oh, yes, he showed at this show. Da, da, da. Now, does he kind of, um, does he regret it? He, he's made, he's now trapped. He's trapped in that. He wouldn't go back because it's fucking helped him buy his flat, his apartment. And it's that catch-22. I want my cake and eat it. I've got the flat. I wish, you know what, on the simplest level, I suppose he just thinks, 
yeah, it's been really good for me. I just wish they'd look at my other stuff as well. I guess that's it. It's an interesting dilemma that a lot of artists have in their lives, which, I mean, what, okay, first of all, every artist wants to be recognized, you know, whatever, like their work to be recognized and respected, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then when, and then if we can get one image in our entire lifetime recognized, it's amazing because there are so many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of artists that are not recognized for anything they've ever done for, for their career. And then th those people that get that one recognized are always like, gosh, I wish people would recognize my other stuff. And I'm like, you are so lucky to even have one recognized. Yeah, no, I agree. But then there's also the other thing. It's like we're working at the moment. We're working with um, – we, we do a launch at the Royal Academy – or the Royal Academy used to be – the original print fair, which is now in um, Somerset House. It's an art fair. And artists, when they get to a certain level, the money doesn't motivate them anymore. They're after that legacy. They're after that being seen in the right places. And so we're kind of working with Stanley Donwood. He did all the stuff for Radiohead and Tom York, the main singer from Radiohead. And we're doing it, and I said, listen, you know, and they do really well. They don't need the money. And I prayed for Stanley Donwood, so he's an old friend of mine. And I said, listen, Stanley, Tom, right, we, we're launching at the Royal Academy. We're going to place it in the Victoria and Albert Museum Art Library Collection. They're going to do all the publicity. You're going to be one of the people they focus on. Do you want to do it? I goes, you know, and we're publishing it with Steve, with Stephen from Any Farm and Editions, old school um, in Museum Street Book Publishers. And they kind of think, yeah, do you know what? That ticks the boxes. I get to write a poem. I get to do a piece of art. It gets placed in the V&A. Money, some money will come in from it. It's, it's working with Jealous. It's working. It ticks those boxes. It's, uh, it's where I want to be seen. Yeah, Darren, let's work together. It's, it's not even talking about the money. It's, it's just, look, this is what I will do with it. It will be placed in these places. So they want to, it's like when the Hockney, I saw it, I love David Hockney. He did a show at the Royal Academy. And he chose, and the last one, and they're all, they're all um, portraits or people sitting for him, all the people, you know, and one, they're kind of the, the, the head of the RA, um, big collectors, um, heads of museums, filmmakers. And, you know, I looked at those and all of those people there are there because all those portraits will be given to those people and they'll be kept in their houses, they're all big people. And basically I looked at them and it felt slightly disingenuous that I thought, do you know what? Do you know what, Mr. Hockney? You, you, I, it's like you're fucking, it's for your legacy. You're putting in all these, all these, dun, 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 these little pieces in all these different houses that will keep you alive long after you're gone. That's what I feel. And this is from someone who loves Hockney. This is someone who loves his work. I love what he's about. I love what he does. But I saw that show and I'm, I'm probably wrong. Maybe I am not. Maybe I'm not wrong. But it just felt as if he, he was too aware of the people that he chose to paint that, that for me. So what I'm saying is that same thing. Is artists go to a past a certain point and it's being remembered. Is you know would 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 I, yeah, I suppose what artist what would artists say? Say look, a well off career and be, the moment you're dead, you're fucking forgotten. Or you do you struggle for your life, but when you're fucking dead, you will be one of the big ones. And I wonder, you know, I actually, what would you go for? What would you go for? A comfortable life, but it all dies with you? Or do you, you know, I don't know. 
it goes back and forth. Yeah, but, exactly. I mean, it, I'm sort of more at this point in my life. I'm a bit more on the idea of I'd rather leave a legacy for my family and children, kind of thing, to yeah. be able to do something with. Exactly, and that's I guess I suppose I suppose that's yeah, that's that's what I think. And do do you know the film director Wes Anderson? Of course. Right, okay. I was talking with an artist, and I said, have you seen the last film? I was waiting for you to go, I was talking with Wes No, Anderson. no, no, no. The French Dispatch. <laughs> Do you know, the French Dispatch. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the Right, have you seen yeah. the last one? I see, I didn't like that as much as these other ones. It wasn't the Grand Budapest Hotel, and I felt as if the, 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 the visuals stood in front of the story for me. I kind of I felt that. And that's what I felt. It's like great visual, you know, the way it goes in and the scene opens. And I thought it'd be great on stage in the way they you know, the way those whole sets move. But the story didn't sit at the forefront. But anyway, that's what I felt. And I was speaking to an artist. I said, Oh, have you seen? He goes, He's a bit annoying, isn't he, though? <laughs> and I kind of, and I knew what he meant. And I'm like, Yeah, I know what you mean. But anyway, but what I liked in the French Dispatch, and I thought, I really want to do this to do with jealous. Well, he said when the guy and it was Murray, Bill Murray, you know, he runs, he runs it. The moment he died, he closed the French dispatch, the magazine. And he said, anyone who had a subscription will get paid back. Anyone who works here, stop straight away. They will get a paid, paid at the end of the year and a good bonus. And that's it. And I was kind of thinking, I might put that in my will. The moment I die, Jealous stops. Anyone who's paid a deposit for a print gets the money returned. Every single bit of art that we have just fucking gets destroyed. Everyone who's worked with me will be paid to the end of the year and then they can fuck off. And then that's <laughs> and I kind of like the idea of that because then people will say, I can't believe he's just done that. I cannot fucking believe he's done that. In and of itself, that's an interesting legacy. <laughs> Jealousy. It died the day he died, but probably won. But you actually, you just brought up something that I was wondering about, which is like storage. Like, so do you? So you do prints. You were saying so yeah. you you produce prints for pay, but you also then publish fund them. some prints, yes. publish your own prints, and so you then store all of these, right? We've, we've, yes, we have plan chests and plan chests in our other building. You know, it was like, and Jackie's the one who brought it up. She said, if we were to what sell if there's a all the fire. Yeah, well, yeah, well, we're insured with it. But the trouble is, with prints, you can't charge, you don't get the money back what they're, on what they're worth. You're, you get the money back for insurance on the cost of having to remake them again. That's how it works. Because again, it's, you know, if, if somebody says, but that's not, why is that a real price? I say, because that's what they sell for. Yeah, but it, for you to re, to make them again, you haven't lost that money because you can remake them again, can't you? Yeah, and how much would it cost you to remake? Well, that would be the the cost. You know, so that's how it works. But Fucking insurers. I, I, I know, them. I know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a lot of paper. But I've we have drawers of prints that I've just not sold, and I still love them, but we have just drawers and drawers and drawers and drawers of prints. You know, just so much, just so much. And well, and I mean, partly that's sort of the thing. It's like so you keep everything in like a flat files, basically. Yeah, they're those big drawers, big chests of drawers. They're made for paper. Right. About you know, yeah. That must be very heavy as well. Yeah, paper. Yeah, papers. I mean, papers heavy. You know, yes, they are. They are heavy, and it's you know they get damaged and they get done. So, yeah, 
Yeah, they, they do. It's just paper storage. It's just storage. Everything has to be kept flat and looked after. And in archival, in you know, in archival, you know, so everything has to be done properly, pH neutral. Everything has to be done from when we frame from, you know, we, we frame properly so we don't use kind of glue. You use rice paper with rice starch kind of hinges to put it at the back. And, you know, so you have as least intervention in the paper as, as possible. But yeah, I do know. I was a framer at one point in my career. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, that's what we do framing. But you know, I collect paper. I collect works. So that's what I do. All right. Within that, I have a very okay. I've got like two last questions. Yeah. So <laughs> we have been talking um, for nearly two hours. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's okay. fine. Yeah, yeah. I love it. You're great. <laughs> You're, you've got great stories. I love it. So the um, certificates of authenticity. Right. Do you do them? Yes, COIs. Yes, we do. Are they worth anything when a gallery sells a piece of art that they own and sell it to you? Not really. Not really. I mean, does it when we do? Yes, because we printed them. That's different. Our paper, lots of our prints, they've got our blind stamp, JP, Jealous Prints. So it has our stamp. Some artists, I mean, sometimes we don't do them, but on the whole, we do them. So that is that already says where it comes from. So you get a certificate saying, this is printed by Jill. This is number 33, 12 color silk screen. Da, 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 da. It has all that information, but we printed it. And sometimes people say, you get the auction houses and saying, oh, Dario, oh, this is Chris, this is Sarah. Oh, all right, Sarah, how are you doing? Oh, we've got someone who's brought in this um, David Shridley print. I'm just funny, it's this AP, but I thought the APs were numbered. Da, da, da. I said, oh, let me see. Oh, no, that's, that's fine. And actually, I just want to go back because I didn't cover this. Right now, APs. You get about 10%. So to really, I'll be really quick. You get 10%. But when you make an addition of 125 prints, you start off with more because you're going to lose some along the way. The paper, the ink will mess up on one. And if it's, you know, you may lose one or two per color. So if you're doing 10 colors, you're going to print about 30 extra. So if it's addition 125, you have to do about hundred and well, we do about 180. You say, but why so many? Because then you have insurance copies. Insurance copies, because now everything goes out on, on um, we sell a lot online. It goes out, they're posted. FedEx, DHL, they arrive. You get a picture. It's just been fucking bent or the tube is broken. You say, can I have the picture? Okay. Send it back to us and then we'll resend it. So then we have to have it sent back. We, we kind of see, what was, that was number 46. So we get the one that is insurance copy, and we just fill in the number, number 46 of 125, and send it. Now, when they're all gone, they're all gone, you have still have, sometimes you don't have any insurance copies. On the whole, because, and we don't lose many along the way, you might have seven or eight that are numbered, that are signed by the artist. Now, what do you do with those? Now, they're signed by the artist. So what you do is you turn them, and it's traditional, just you turn them back into APs and then you sell them. You don't throw them away. Now, that's quite normal. That's quite normal. Sometimes you get two or three. And so that is normal to do. So that's when people say, but how come this one has only got 13 APs and they're numbered as three unnumbered? And you explain, that's why they're insurance copies. And so they turned into APs after. So sometimes that's why there's that flux with APs. I had never thought about the idea of an insurance copies. I think that's great. You have and to, to have me, that's, Well, it's a very modern idea. You know, like 50 years ago, we didn't need to think about that. But 50 years ago, you'd have HCs. They're called HCs. They're called horse commerce, not for sale. Now, they're the ones, when they make big additions in Paris, then what they do, they send them out to the galleries 
to sell, but then they'd give them one, they'd one to show people, and that's called HC. So when you'd be looking at the print and say, look, and yeah, you could talk about the print and show them print, but that wasn't for sale. That's called HCs. Then you have the APs. Then the printers always get one called PPs. You get the printer's proof. So all the printers always get one. So sometimes, you know, the thing is, the reason I, why I can pay shit wages is because the printers were like, they're printing the David Shrigley. So if they're printing one, they get their wages, and then they get their one that says printer's proof, which then they will sell for three or four thousand pounds. Now, so, you know, they're getting two or three of those a year. You need the job to get the perks. <laughs> and so that's why. But that's how AP. So you have APs, you have PPs, and David Shrigley makes us, gives us one ARC, archival, and, our, you know, so, so, so it's for our archives. So we keep those for our archives so people saying them. When I'm broke, I'll sell those. I'll be honest. Sorry, David. But <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I do. I do. I don't. I do. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was going to say, like, do you all as a corporation even have, like, a good collection of, like, the works that you have produced? Do you know what? I never keep the printer's proofs. I always let all the printers that do them. So yeah, we do on some of them. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. But not all of them. We don't have this extent. We don't have, we're not, you know, some companies are really organized. We're not that organized that we have one of every single one that we printed. We're, 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 we're not, yeah, we're, we're a bit more. Mm -mm. Like Lego, where they kept like one of everything they've ever produced yeah, and made yes. a whole museum out of it. God, that must be huge. I didn't know Le Lego was like from Holland or somewhere. It's just like, oh, is it Dutch? Yeah, Dutch is from Holland, yeah. I always kind of, always think the Red Hot Chili Peppers and the Foo Fighters are the same band. Don't you think they kind of... Blasphemy. No, do you? Oh, really? <laughs> who do you, who do you like? Man. Who do you like? Uh, wait, between Foo Fighters and Red Hot Chili Peppers? Okay, I would say, well, but I like both of them. I grew oh, up, no, no. I'm of the era of Red Hot Chili Peppers, but the early Red Hot Chili Peppers pre-Californication. Oh, okay. See, I like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So like Mother's Milk and all that stuff, that's me. That's, yeah. my, that's my jam. That's my time. Yeah, they are good, yeah. But anyway. <sighs> all right. Uh, last little bit so like and we can tie this together as sort of one little sort of thing a i noticed you've been doing a lot of philanthropy so a lot of benefits and a lot of this kind of stuff which is great and like to hear a little bit about what you're you've been sort of engaging with and like is this something that you were doing pre-pandemic or is this something that would sort of came about because of all the situations there yeah. that's one part of it second part of it is like you have these amazing connections. Like you have, you know, you keep talking about Victoria and Albert Museum and like all these amazing places and people that you work with. How did you pull that shit off? Like how did you meet all these great people? Like what was the, you know, like, cause like when you started Jealous, I'm sure you didn't know all these people. So like yeah. how has it sort of evolved that you've been able to build up these amazing network of connections and, and people in your, in your career? With people, it's, it's, do you know what it is? If you kind of, you, if you do the same thing for such a long time, it's like, you know, it's kind of friends that started off in film and friends started off in music, people stay in fashion and people just, you know, whatever you're doing. But if you're still in it 15, 20 years later, you're just of that, that level. So, you know, 15 years ago when it started, you'd meet kind of someone, oh, what are you doing? Oh, we're doing Princeton. Oh, I'm looking to go into curating. I'm doing, but if you're still doing that, that in 15, 20 years' time, 
you've probably moved up. And so the people that you've known have moved up with you. It's like talking about, you know, you know, working with Ben Ein or working with David Shrigley. When we used to kind of start working together, I used to buy these originals for like 400 pounds. Now they go, you know, for thousands and thousands. But it's not as if, how have you got to work with him? Because we knew each other when he wasn't doing, that wasn't there uh, and I wasn't there. We were just there, but we're still kind of, so that's kind of, the, the, the kind of way it goes, I suppose. You're in that circle. And because of that, you've got that reputation. You print with the people want to print with you and they just see, yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of those things that, like, because I, you know, as again, I'm a professor. And so artists yeah. are always like, how, you know, students are like, how can I, you know, build a good career? And I keep trying to tell them, I'm like, it, an art career is a long game. Like, yeah. it, it is not a, it's not a, burn brightly and got all that kind of stuff like you you have to build relationships and and reputation over decades and a lot of them don't believe me and then people like you that i mean literally you just basically said the reason why i have all these amazing people that are in my sphere are because i've known them for decades and that's and that's the thing it's it's and with artists i always say it's not how you deal with the ups it's how you deal with the downs Everyone's fine when you can when you're selling and you're you're the belle du jour, then that's fine. That's good. You know, you can disappear up your own fucking ass. And that's as so many people do. And, you know, and that's fair enough. It happens the first time. But then it's when 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 yeah, it's when you have the downs and then you have the self-doubt and people aren't buying anymore and then but to carry on believing that what you love what you do and you're doing it for a reason and it's and it's keeping through with that. So, so yeah, that's that. With the philanthropy or just doing just doing work, we always hooked up. I, I grew up around this area, and my mum and dad they had a calf, and so I used to work in the calf. But but the East End it used to be just it used to be a place for immigrants. <laughs> Why is that funny? When you said calf, I thought you meant like a a, a cow, like oh a, a calf. Cow. Oh no, a calf, a cafe, a working man's yeah, cafe. You're right. Yeah, a cat. No. <laughs> No. So you'd Got see. It, yes. Yeah. There's cafe. A cafe. A cafe. <laughs> Man's cafe. But what they did, but you just see, there was just so much homeless around, homelessness around here. Spiritual fields. And I, so I grew up with that. And I'd always kind of, and I remember kind of as a little kid, and this guy, this old guy used to come into the cafe. A cafe, and um, know the ca- I know <laughs> what cafe means cafe. now. You right. could say cafe now. He'd come into the cafe, and uh, and you just have the menu, and you know it'd be one of those cheap cafes. Ca- ca- but you'd see, you know, and I remember him looking at, at the change if he could afford the food, and I kind of think, and that homelessness and that poverty and that that general thing of food has always been kind of. So we've always worked with the big issue, which is a kind of a, a magazine which works with homeless people. And we always kind of donated to them. I mean, I have kids, so we work with St. Almond's, um, St. Almond's Hospital. It looks after young kids that are kind of, you know, on palliative care or just, you know, seriously ill. And, you know, and shelter, which also deals with homeless. And during pandemic, all of us, we, start, we cooked for, for homeless people, and which had these big signs where people were bringing in food. And to, I'll be honest, you know, people say, oh, it's such a good thing to do. Because, yeah, it was good, but it also kept all of us sane. You know, because I'm not saying working with artists, some of us drink too much, some of us get into drugs, some of us, you know, you have all of this, you know. I'll be honest, right? Everything shut down apart from my fucking dealer. He was 24-7, and that's the thing. But, you know, so it just felt the right thing to do. Now we've hooked up with the 
with, with the Tottenham Food Bank. So we can, we've turned our galleries into, into um, drop-off points for Haringey, which is a borough. So then we can do that, and we're putting in £50 a week on, on top of that. And so many people are just giving money. So then we just give, give, give that to them. Do you know what? There's people starving to death. There's people starving to death. You know, and what the fuck? You know, and I know I do what I do, um, but, yeah. It just doesn't. It feels, you know, I just, I just want to kind of be able to live with myself with the things, you know. And I'm not saying, you know, I don't give as much as I could. So, but I'll do something. I'll do something that fits in with my comfort zone, and it's just, and I get other people to help. And it's, yeah, it's, it just feels right. All right. Last little bit. I always wrap up with is sort of any advice, sort of, uh, of from your perspective on like what some young creative person could do to sort of get in and work successfully through this art world. Do you, do you know what? This is kind of it's slightly more specific. It's when people come in, to, they say they want to come into a gallery and they want to be shown with a gallery. It's they say, oh, I've got some really work, well, I'd like you to represent me. That just scares gallerists off. The way to approach a gallery is this, is to be really easy. As you go into a gallery, you say, oh, hello, um, uh, can I speak? Blah, blah, blah. I'm speaking to the owner. Look, I really love your gallery. And obviously, you look for a gallery that does the same kind of work that you have. You have no point in doing landscapes if they're showing abstract kind of sculpture. Yeah, there's not for you. They're not going to say no. So I think, oh, they could show my work and say, look, they, look, this is my work. Always show them less. Don't show them think, oh, I've got these three are really good. These next two are a bit shit. Oh, they're okay. And then they go down. Don't show those. Just show the three or four good ones and just say, look, these are the works that people love. Yeah, these are the works that people love. I really love your gallery. If you're ever having a group show in the summer or Christmas, you know, I would love to be part of it. I could bring you down the work framed. Obviously, you show the work, you know, I'd give you my kind of my, 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 um, my collector's nut base so they, they you know, you, you can forward it out to them. And, you know, galleries are like, God, they're going to give me their, you know, they, and just say, look, and these are the really strong works. This one is, I've had a really good response to, you know, I sold us, you know, and just so, so make it easy for them. And they, they have a group show, they think, yeah, she was, was it was okay. But then your aim as an artist is to get it on the wall. The rest, the market dictates. Your aim is to see a gallery and think, I want it on that wall there. How do I get my one piece on the wall to get it shown? Because then it's down, it's not even down to you or the gallery. They've got it on the wall. And the gallery will see how people respond to that work. And sometimes, even if it doesn't sell, they might think, do you know what? I really like that piece. What's her name again? Or what's his name? Have a look. God, that's really, really nice. But do you know what I mean? It's, that's what I would say. It's just go in there low-key. Don't say expecting that, you know, just, and just be nice to it. Always get back to people. Always just always kind of put the work out. Just be friendly. I mean, network is, a, you know, I'm shit at networking. But if you do it genuinely, you know, just kind of – yeah, just be open. <laughs> do you know? I do. And the, you, you've been great. Oh, good. <laughs> this has been so much fun. Yeah, it has been, hasn't it? It's been good. It has. I'm sure you're very busy. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. To wrap this up, I'd like to thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We would appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, or anybody with an interest in arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.